This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. kind of human project, where we talk to people who are neurodiverse, diverse and just plain different. This is a space to celebrate diversity and hear from people who are intentionally living outside the box of society's constraints. So in today's show, we have Chris Sibley back. We spoke to him a fortnight ago about his past as a gay man in America, who experienced tensions between his spiritual calling, the kind of work he was drawn to as a neurodiverse person, and his sexuality as a gay man. We've invited him back this time to talk about his journey beyond the military and beyond America and what's happened to him since to bring him today to be somebody living in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So welcome back, Chris. Thank you for having me. Great to have you back in the studio. So where we left it a fortnight ago was uh, you had left the military, um, times were changing, you thought it was time to leave. Um, You'd been in it during the Don't Ask, Don't Tell era. What happened for you then once you left the military? Um, I had gotten in a relationship with an Australian, um, and gay marriage had not passed uh, in Australia or the United States at the time, though Australia did recognize um, same-sex relationships in the sense of, uh, oh, what's it called, um, common law partners. Um, and technically, I was still in the military at the time. Um I had gone on inactive uh, reserve status, uh, which is generally part of your military service in case they need to call you back up for any sort of future conflict. Uh, And I had moved to Australia to try and establish residency uh, with my partner and to get our relationship recognized in the common law sense, Um, which was incredibly difficult. And so we had to hire lawyers, and that involves a lot of money and and time and effort as well. Um, And I moved to Adelaide in January of 2000 and lived there until October the 1st. And... Pretty much everything that could go wrong did. So September the 11th happened, um, and ANSAT, the airline uh, that uh, competed in Australia along with Qantas, went defunct in the middle of all of that, and everybody was trying to get back to the States. And my father had a heart attack and died. So I was trying to get home in the midst of all that chaos, and my family in the States um, used my military status to get the Red Cross to get me a flight out so that I could get home for my father's funeral. Um, but it was the Queen's birthday when I left, so my lawyer's office was closed, the government offices were closed, and I did not know that by leaving Australia that I was violating my visa 
and eliminating my opportunity to be able to stay in Australia with my partner, um, which if we had had the same rights as heterosexuals at the time, that wouldn't have been an issue. So went home, went to my father's funeral, um, stayed for a while to help my mother you know, with some things and to deal with all the kind of stuff that you have to deal with when a parent dies, um, and went back, attempted to go back to Australia. I was stopped in Los Angeles and told that I would not be allowed to fly on um, to Australia. And that's how I ended up in New Zealand. So You took uh, a flight from LA to New Zealand instead? Eventually, yes. I, I tried to work with the Australian government for 10 days. Um, unfortunately, um, the lady that was in charge of my case, every single day she would give me a new criteria to meet. Um, you know, the first thing I had to prove that, that my father had died. I had to prove how much money I had in my bank account. Um, I had to have an HIV test. I had to have a tuberculosis test. Did you have to have the HIV uh, test because everybody does or because you were a gay man? Oh, no, these were all specific to my case. Uh, and they were just trying, they were just blowing smoke. They were just trying to keep me out. Um, and so eventually I said, I got lost my temper. I'll never forget the lady's name. I probably shouldn't say it on air. Um, but um, I'm like, why couldn't you tell me all of these things the very first day I came here and I could have dealt with it at once rather than staying here in Los Angeles, living in a hotel room for 10 days, getting one little assignment each time. I said, I'm going to New Zealand and my partner's going to meet me there. <laughs> um, and so that's how we came to New Zealand. Um and I actually like New Zealand better. <laughs> so that turned out to be a positive for me. Um, we have since broken up and he's gone back to Australia. So I'm still in New Zealand. So that proves that I'm not just blowing smoke up up Kiwis bums. <laughs> uh, I really do like it better here. Um, but part of that process, again, got me thinking about my life and what I wanted to do here, that I had a new beginning in a new country and that I could start over from scratch and what was that going to be and what would it look like. And I thought back to my time at university and how I wanted to do everything and how difficult it was for me to choose something because if I chose one thing, then I was giving up something else. And it just occurred to me, what's the one thing that you can do where you get to do all of that? And it's teaching. So I checked with Victoria University about my bachelor's qualifications from the States and what I would be eligible to teach. And because I had so many semester hours, I was able to teach English and Spanish and history and social studies and classics and geography. So I I enrolled at the teacher's college um, and I became a teacher here in New Zealand. And I've loved doing that ever since. And was it okay being gay at teacher's college at this point? It was... Well, it is challenging because there's always, just like with my family and with the military, there's always people that tell you not to tell people that you're gay, that you're just inviting trouble, that you're just creating problems for yourself that, that you wouldn't have, and you get that classic, it's nobody's business, nobody needs to know. Um, but one of the first things students ask you is, are you married? And there's no way you can answer any question after that without lying unless you're honest about who you are. So the truth to the question is, are you married? For the first five years of my teaching was, well, I would be, but it's illegal for me to be married. <laughs> and if I didn't say that, I would be lying. Mm. 
because the only reason my former partner and I weren't married at that time is because we were not allowed to get married at that time. Um, and then once marriage was legal, when somebody asked, are you married? Um, you know, you can say no. Uh, but all the teachers that I work with and, and I've had this conversation with many teachers who try and deny it. They have pictures of their children on their desk. They have pictures of their partner on their desk. They wear wedding rings. There's evidence of their sexuality everywhere. Why do they need to do that? Couldn't couldn't they just like be it but not have to tell people? Yeah. Well, you could, but you, you should be able to tell people there's nothing I know, wrong. I was just joking. <laughs> Um, and of course, as soon as gay marriage passed in New Zealand, I, I had heterosexual teacher friends. You know, whenever I would would talk about, well, you're wearing a wedding a wedding ring, and they would be like, well, you can wear a wedding. I can't say that. You can wear a wedding ring now too. And I'm like, having marriage for gay people for one year doesn't mean that we're equal. <laughs> You've had. Thousands and thousands of years of heterosexual marriage. People still think a wedding ring represents heterosexual marriage. Um, so that sort of really is a defunct argument. Um, gay people are still discouraged from being openly gay. Um, and you have um, very conservative, very religious parents that that are against you sharing that information. Um, principals have to deal with those conflicts uh, and it's unfortunate that they arise. Um, but when people see a husband and a wife or they see you with pictures of your children, you don't think about sex, even though those things emerge from a sexual relationship. Unfortunately, when people look at two men and two women together, that's all they think about is sex. Mm. Um, and hopefully that will change over time as well. And until it does we suffer with the abuses of that. Yeah, because I guess the, the gay person is commodified um, as as somebody that's engaged in sexual behaviour in the culture, uh, the heterosexual culture will see that as, uh, you know, in pornography and in, in erotica and other things, that's where we're mostly seen because we're actually not seen as parents and partners and, um, you know, the don't ask, don't tell. You're never going to get to see us if we keep doing that as the broad human beings that we are. So the sexualization of us actually is occurring from the heterosexual um, mainstream. Right. And that's also comes up in the negative aspect that I believe I talked about last time um, is gay men and lesbians as predators um, and that we're grooming, you know, people for a sexual relationship, which is it shows Again, that not gender, the same thing. Yeah, that shows that your sexuality is often is obviously so flimsy that somebody could simply come in your direction and, and go, oi, and uh, and you would suddenly become a different sexuality. Yes. But if it was that easy, we would have all changed as in the face of the unsurmountable right. discrimination, wouldn't it? And I can't imagine <laughs> there are many people that that went through more to try and change their sexuality than I did, yeah. and it didn't work. <laughs> so. You're listening to The Different Kind of Human Project, and today we're talking to Chris Sibley about his experiences as a gay man and a neurodiverse human being as he came to New Zealand and now has been living here for how many years, Chris? Oh, I've lived here since 2001. Cool. So 21 years. And you took up teaching? 
Yes. Found that you could teach many different disciplines because of that college background that you had. Yes, but history is still my favorite. Cool. cool. <laughs> that makes sense. That's what you were talking about a fortnight ago about being really interested in history and the history of the civil rights movement and, and the era in which you grew up. Yeah. So tell me about time in New Zealand now as somebody with ADHD. Um, have times changed? You're a teacher now mm. that has ADHD. How is that for you? Um, challenging. Um, it's really interesting that in schools we have such a tolerant, helpful, uh, though I imagine some of the students will probably disagree with me, but we try to have such a tolerant and helpful attitude towards students with learning disabilities. Um, and we try and get them the assistance and the help that they need, and we try to create lessons um, that will engage them at their level of functionality. Um, but when you become an adult, and some people hearing the word adult will think, you know, tough cookies, you're an adult, deal with it. Um, but all of those helpful things turn off. You're expected to function and be just like everybody else all the time. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know, that I'm using my ADHD as an excuse. Um, in what kind of ways would people, you know, what would you be doing where someone would say it was an excuse? What, in what ways does it um, challenge you? Well, I think it's really important that students with learning disabilities have role models. So I've always been very open with my classes about uh, I have dyslexia as well as attention deficit disorder. Um, and I talk about how it affects my life. Um, I talk about how it was for me as a student. Um, and the thing that seems to get me in trouble sometimes is I talk about how it affects my life now. Um, you know, and I warn my students. I'm like, sometimes, you know, I might swear accidentally. I might say something that I'm not supposed to say. Um, and it's because I think out loud. I'm, I'm processing my information verbally, which is one of the ways that I function, rather than internally in my head. And I always tell them, you know, if I say anything that offends you um, or if I swear and I don't realize it, you know, just come talk to me after class, you know, and, and we'll deal with that situation as it arises. But I warn them that, that it can happen. Um, and it's not bullying. It's not me being mean. Um, fortunately for me, it tends to come out empathetically. So when I get up upset in a classroom, it's generally because I have a student or a group of students that I'm trying to help and not succeeding, which for most teachers is just trying to get basic behaviors um, that will see them succeed. So that can be anything from starting an assignment and finishing it to appropriate classroom behavior. Um, but the goal is is not control, as I think a lot of kids perceive it as. The goal is you want the best learning environment for your students individually and collectively as a class. And that's a very challenging thing to do. But it sure is to go to work every day and try to attempt that, you know, all of these different kinds of humans that you've actually got in class. Yeah. I mean, are there any strengths or benefits from having ADHD, do you think, that, that come into your work? Um, I think my honesty is a benefit. Um, I don't know that I would have that. And I understand why some teachers are like, you shouldn't talk to kids about having ADHD. You shouldn't talk to kids about being dyslexic. Um, because it can create 
um, sort of opportunities to maybe be taken advantage of as a teacher or... uh, You'd be aware of those, though, wouldn't you? So actually being a role model and this particular honesty, which clearly affected you when you were younger in that you couldn't do the don't ask, don't tell, that you just needed to be true to yourself, that once you started with one light, it would just be like a cascade of others. That's clearly an ADHD quality yeah. for you um, of being honest. It's it's actually had an impact across your life. Yeah. Well, and it also raises issues about what intelligence is. So one of my favorite uh, comments that I ever read, I, students I don't think use it anymore, but there was a period, I guess, around 2010 where there was this website called Rate My Teacher. Mm. Um, and it was always terrifying to look at because it's not um, – Nobody monitored it. So kids would say whatever they wanted to they say. R- rate their teacher yes. in any way they wanted. Whereas like they so were they, a great teacher or a bad teacher. Yeah. And they not only did they rate you, but they made comments about you. Um, and one of the scariest things I ever did was to read that. Um, but one of the kids wrote that, that I was a great teacher and that I was funny, but that he didn't think I was very smart. <laughs> and... I can see as as a teacher with ADHD, I come across as being like the absent-minded professor. And that got me thinking, well, what does smart look like in a teacher? And I realized, and I think it's only gotten worse with the computer generation, that students think intelligent looks like a person that wins quiz night at the pub. You know all the answers, and you can get it in less than two seconds. <laughs> Quick, and they have all the data. Yeah. And that's not what – that's an aspect of intelligence, but there's a whole bunch of different aspects of intelligence um, that kids don't seem to – well, not just children, that parents and even some teachers don't recognize as being intelligence. Wisdom's one, and I know that you have an awful lot of that. Oh, and well, thank you. <laughs> perspective and wisdom. Um, but uh, – oh, and I'm forgetting his name. Uh, not Bloom's taxonomy, but uh, Howard Gardner's um, – Multiple intelligence is is something that we've studied for some time, but we've also learned about emotional intelligence, you know, at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. Um, And there's grit, which is popular right now. We're learning all kinds of different things about intelligence. Um, And it's not the game show quiz answer kind of intelligence. Um, It's much more in-depth. It involves thinking. And it involves pausing before you answer a question and actually thinking about what you're going to say, which is completely the opposite of of the game, what I call the game show kind of intelligence. Uh, quick fire, the yeah. quick fire kind of intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And so certain intelligences are privileged in society and certain aren't. Right. And, and that affects children's self-esteem. So the kids that that have really good short-term memory and that can fire off answers um, to quiz-like questions, they feel really proud and they feel like they're really smart. And the kids that can't do that, you know, who might be great essayists or, you know, really thoughtful writers, um, they don't think they're very smart. I know this is a huge issue for neurodiversity and getting a later-in-life diagnosis of being autistic um, and of course, just like you, it would be pretty impossible to get a, a decent diagnosis back in the day when 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 we were young. Um, it's shown me that I have a different way of being that m- might be perceived um, as uh, 
as absent-minded again a little bit actually um, or um, missing the point on certain things um, and so the more autistic I come across and the less I socially mask because I can socially mask and act like the version that people want but it's just so exhausting that I go home exhausted at the end of the day but if I'm just being more me and more autistic I definitely get treated more by people that like I'm not so smart so there's something about neurodiverse qualities that um, I guess coming out of the intellectual disability area and how we used to have people in Templeton and it was only those people with really high support needs that were identified and then we've come along later with less support needs um, I'm support level one autism uh, that um, that the, the discrimination or the idea that this this particular kind of human is defective has kind of travelled outside of that with us, you know. And those people weren't defective at all, you know. If they if they could have been communicated with and accessed and and given a space to be in, they they could have had rich lives. Uh, similarly, those people who are in mental asylums, etc. But sort of the castaways of those who didn't fit within the mould. And then we've come along um, and clearly. Um, have the same kind of qualities of neurodiversity um, expressed differently uh, with fewer support needs. But I think, as you and I have talked about, the level of support need that we actually do have is quite high. I certainly need um, someone to come in and, and be a support person at home every week. Um, and I know that you have some support around your ADHD. Yeah, and that um, sort of ties everything together too for me as far as... Um as my sexuality and my neurodiversity because as an adult, LGBT youth need role models. They need adults um, that they can look up to. They need to be able to see people that are like them in positions of authority and know that they can achieve those same kind of goals for themselves. Neurodiverse kids need role models. They need to be able to look and go, you know, oh, there's a teacher that's like me that has dyslexia. There's a teacher like me that has ADHD and that has to take Ritalin every day at 12 o'clock, just like I do when I go to the school nurse, and see that they can achieve and do those things as well. Um, and, and I don't think people get the importance that that has in being able to see yourself in other people. Um, I posted a comment on on Twitter the other day. Somebody asked the question, "What would they like to see in the in the next prime minister?" And I said, "I would like to see an an openly gay or lesbian prime minister one day." Um, and I got raked over the coals for saying that. Um, you know, by the it Twitter doesn't matter. Writing. Yeah, you know, why does anybody need to say that? Why do we need that? Don't ask, don't tell. And as a gay person. You know, that would show that we've arrived, that that we're just normal, accepted people, and it doesn't matter. But that as a gay kid in New Zealand, you can dream of being prime minister one day and that actually be something that you've accomplished and that you can look to. Um, and it changes your world. Uh, just like it does for black kids in America, you know. Not just in America. That was, mm -hmm. That's exactly where I was going. We're going to the same place. When Obama was elected president, um, I had a social studies class um, where I taught that was predominantly Maori and Pacifica. And I had students crying uh, because Obama had been elected president because they saw in him somebody that looked like them. Yeah. Um, and that's all I was saying in my post on Twitter is I would love to see somebody – that looks like me 
as a prime minister in New Zealand. And I got raked over the crawls. <laughs> Doesn't mean it won't happen one day, though, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris, for coming back into the studio and talking to me again. You have such a rich story. I really appreciate you being so candid about what's happened in the past. A lot of pain, a lot of insight, uh, and a lot of beauty in your story. So thank you again for coming in. Thank you. That brings us to the end of the program. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the show. My name's Annie Southern. You can listen to this show again on the Plains FM website, Spotify, or on Apple's podcast platform. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. So bye for now, and we look forward to having you with us for another show in a fortnight's time.